0: Hello, and welcome to Chasing Leviathan, the podcast where we pursue big questions. My goal today is to listen and learn just a little bit more. As we head into our conversation, let me invite you to chase life's biggest questions with me, one episode at a time. As we get started here, um, just if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, about your journey. Obviously, we're going to dwell on that at length because uh, <laughs> that's the that's the point of your book on jazz, a, a personal journey. Um, and I, uh, you know, as I was reading through it, I was, it's incredible to see your journey through just several different communities, and yet how tight knit those communities were. Uh, it's very clear that you got to meet a lot of incredible people. And so I'm I'm excited to hear about that today and uh, about your own uh, jazz experience. So do you mind just giving us like, how were you introduced to jazz? And then uh, where is your
1: career taking you from there? Well, jazz was sort of there right in my childhood, because my dad was a great jazz fan. And we listened to jazz records when I was a kid. So the music was going on in the background. So I should say it was classical music. And I started piano lessons very young. I learned the cello classically because I was too small for the double bass. And then eventually I got big enough to have my first double bass. And then things went on from there. And I have to say that supportive parents are really good because Hmm. even though my dad commuted a long journey every day on the train to London, he was prepared when I was 14 to drive me 10 or 15 miles in the evening to a gig and then collect me at the end of it. So he was really putting himself out to make sure that I was given a start in playing jazz with professional musicians. And I guess that was really helpful because as my career has gone on, that early experience of playing with much better people who are all keen to teach me is something that's carried on. And I should say that you know, I haven't been a professional musician more than a few times in my life. I've always played. I've played in professional bands, but most of my career has been either in academic publishing or in broadcasting. So, I was going to go off and be an art, uh, art historian. In um, fact, that, that, that would have been my metier. And here's one of these weird coincidences. This is the era before mobile phones. So, I was literally walking through the quadrangle of my college in Oxford. And the college scout ran out and he said, There's a phone call for you. Now, this is a pay phone. Public payphone in the college, and it just rang, and it happened to be for me, and I happened to be walking past. And it was Macmillan Publishers to say, You turned down our offer of uh, a traineeship, but if we paid you a bit more money, would you come? So I said, Oh, all right. (laughs) And that was the end of my academic career, and it started me off in publishing. And they put me through the mill. I did everything. I was selling books out on the road, I was learning to edit, I was learning production skills, and that was invaluable because. Uh, There's not much in the publishing industry that I haven't had a go at at some stage. So that was great. And then, quite by chance, I slid into broadcasting in 1989. I was um, friends with the great blues scholar Paul Oliver, Uh, more because we were neighbors than anything else. He lives just outside Oxford in the UK, where I live, and we got to know each other through some mutual friends. The sort of people who say, Oh, you know about music. There's this guy down the road, he knows about music. Well, when I discovered that Paul had spent the 60s traveling the States, interviewing everybody who was still around from John Lee Hooker to uh, Chuck Berry to the, the, the lot. I mean, his books on blues are legendary. Um, Paul said, um, I think you ought to think about broadcasting on jazz. I know this person who's a producer, who's looking to do a series on Fats Waller. And I said, ah, Fats Waller, that's my enthusiasm. And so in 1989, I started broadcasting on the BBC and I've been there ever since. How's that for a quick career summary? No, no, that's
0: perfect. No, that's great. Uh, uh, I especially loved uh, your look of excitement when you talk about Fats Waller, Uh, that there's a personal connection there for you, right? Uh, That was one of the main people that you and your dad would listen to, and he would give you advice
1: and criticism. I thought until I was about five or six that we listened to those records because they were funny. Um, your feet's too big, (laughs) your socks don't match. Uh, 24 Robbers Came to My Door, all those songs. and I used to laugh and laugh at them. Um, uh, not My House, But The One Next Door, all that stuff and the lyrics. And my dad said, but aren't you listening to the piano? I said, no. And he said, well, Fats was the most incredible piano player. And then I started listening seriously to what was going on on the records. And it, it's interesting. I mean, later I formed the view that Stride Piano In a way, it's a a completely separate development from much of the rest of jazz. Loads of the stride players, Willie the Lion Smith, James P. Johnson, Fats Waller, Art Tatum, all played in ensembles with other musicians, but it's fundamentally a flamboyant solo technique. And there was Fats showing off his brilliant technique. And even when he was drinking a phenomenal amount of gin, I I remember there's a wonderful story, not in my book, but his son Maurice was at school and the teacher went around the class saying, what does your father do? And they got to him and he said, he drinks gin, which um, <laughs> is perhaps not the usual career path to be talked about in elementary school. Um, but Fats's touch right the way through his career from the beginning is equal to that of the best classical pianists. You listen to his 1941 solo recordings. There's a whole gang of them done for RCA at that time. And his touch is up there with Horowitz and some of the other great classical players. It's phenomenal playing. And gradually, I got to know that. And the funny thing about later in my life, when I started to meet jazz musicians from the swing era, was either those who played with Fats, those who knew him, or my great mentor, Buck Clayton, had a dad who introduced him to Fats Waller Records when he was growing up. And we always bonded over that, that our dads would say, no, just listen to the trumpet that's coming up on the next bit. And almost the same things on the same records. It was very weird that we had that joint enthusiasm as kids.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, even as you mentioned the gin story, there's several hilarious stories that come out of like that uh, Fats Waller uh, chapter. Um, Unless maybe I'm getting mistaken, I believe, is he the one that would play the toupee game or is that someone different?
1: No, that's the Count Basie band. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> so the Count Basie band would be on stage. And you have to remember in the 1930s, big bands might start playing for a matinee at about three in the afternoon, and they'd be playing until one in the morning. And particularly wow. if they were working in a picture house in Harlem, the, the main feature would show, and then they'd do another 45, 50 minute set, then there'd be another picture, then they'd do another set. So they were there for a very long time. And of course- When the movie wasn't showing, the house lights went up so they could see the audience. And I think it was Lester Young, the saxophonist, who started saying, Row three, seat five, toupee, row four, (laughs) two in from the end. Is that real or is that a rug? And the band did this. And I didn't know about it until I was talking to Buck Clayton. He'd come over and we'd just published his book. And I, as all publishers do with their authors, I took him out for lunch in London and he kept pointing at the menu and saying to the waiter, what's this? And finally, the waiter went away. And I said, was there a problem there? He said, no, but you did, did you see the rug that guy was wearing? I thought the ceiling <laughs> fan might blow it off onto my plate. And yeah. then he told me that Harry Sweets Edison, his fellow trumpeter in the Basie band, had actually been uh, jailed for a night because the band bet him that he couldn't knock somebody's wig off with a bagel in a restaurant. Unfortunately, uh, <laughs> this was in Boston. I think had it been south of the Mason Dixon line, it would have been more serious. Anyway, he threw yes, his bagel across the restaurant and the toupee landed on the table and the, he, he was jailed for one night for assault. Anyway, when I met Sweets, it was one of those things. The BBC records concerts, and one of the jobs that somebody might like me has to do is before the concert, you get to interview one or two people in the band so that as it's going out live, when the audience go out to get their drinks in the interval, we've got something to broadcast. So this was a live show with Lionel Hampton and his golden men of jazz, and Sweets was playing the trumpet section. Um, It's him and Benny Bailey, the great uh, trumpeter. And uh, so I'd been given him as the interview subject for the interval of the concert, and he clearly didn't really want to do it. So we sat down, and I said, look, before we start, is that true about you and Bagel in Boston? And he looked at me, his eyes opened, and he said, young man, you're very well informed. (laughs) And from that moment, he was brilliant because the ice had been broken and he knew that I must have chatted to one or two of the people on the inside, because that story, until I published it, had not been published anywhere. And he could not have been better. He was just the most wonderful subject. And when I saw him again in New York, uh, again, it was come down, meet the band. I met Buddy Tate, all these other people in his band at the time. But that was all down to this ridiculous game of the Basie band Spotting wigs and toupees in the audience.
0: Uh, and I think uh, what I really love and uh, what I'd love to emphasize as we talk here is the very human element. I mean, even, uh, and this has come up in other interviews that I've done with artists, uh, people tend to over romanticize uh, artists and the process of getting good at stuff, the process of uh, actual process of creation and, and acquiring skills. Um, uh, for instance, I, I interviewed a, uh, master stone cutter, and, uh, someone came to film her and said, so when you break up with someone, do you like, uh, do you carve their visage for months? And she's like, no, it's really expensive and a lot of work. <laughs> and then, So they ended up not filming. They were very disappointed. Right. It's like, she's like, it's grueling labor. Like I'm, I'm cutting stone. And when you described, um, uh, and I don't know how I miss this, but like, uh, starting to play at three in the afternoon and finishing up at one at night. And they did this regularly throughout the week. It's not like they just did once, right? Like they would play multiple times in a week. That's a grueling schedule. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that grueling nature? Do you think maybe that's part of, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the heavy gin drinking and maybe there's a connection there, but if you could talk about the the grueling nature of that, I, I'm really curious what your thoughts are.
1: Well, It was tough. It was very hard work. And I talked to in previous books, I've covered this in various different ways. So, for example, the Cab Calloway band needed to get new music to play because the guys would have gone absolutely crazy just doing Minnie the Moocher and kicking the gong around every night. They needed to to, to find some other material to do. And Doc Cheatham and Danny Barker, both of whom I, I work with on autobiographies, told me that outside the Cotton Club, there would often be a line of composers trying to sell their songs to the Callaway band. And obviously the reason for this was they knew this hunger for the music. But the other side of that is the guys who had to play it had to be able to play anything. Now, in another book that I wrote many years ago, The New History of Jazz, I looked into the psychology of this. And one of my uh, principles of how bebop got developed, that's the modern jazz of the 1940s, was it was so incredibly boring playing these swing charts night after night after night, that actually people started experimenting with different harmony, with different time fields and so on. And Dizzy Gillespie, when he got kicked out of the Callaway band for um, cutting Cab Callaway with a knife in a very unfortunate part of his anatomy um, Cab Takes 16 Stitches in Posterior was the headline in uh, Downbeat, I think. Um, Dizzy used to come back to the afternoon rehearsals and give the band his charts to play because he knew they were so good at sight reading they could read anything. And Mm. all those bands were the same. The Tommy Dorsey Orchestra on the White Side of the Divide, um, the Count Basie Band, they, they all read. Interesting talking to Buck Clayton that when the Basie Band was in Kansas City and then they came to Chicago, they didn't have any sheet music they played everything from memory now again once they had to start doing more and more and more repertoire including playing for shows they all had to be readers and so gradually the members of the band who weren't great readers left and i have here in the house one of the transcriptions that buck did from their records so that they could hand out parts to the new people who came in and they could read the arrangements that the band was famous for playing on record that's another Prison of the job, which is that when you have a hit record, you had to play it exactly the same. And I remember uh, there's a bit in the book talking to the great saxophonist Benny Waters, where he joined Jimmy Lunsford's band, and he had to learn his predecessor, uh, his predecessor's solo on "Margie" the song, and he had to play it every night. And if he strayed from it, Lunsford would tap the rostrum and say, "Let's go back. You have to play that solo." And he said it was it was like being in a musical prison. But on the other hand, the band was working all the time. They were well paid. And so people put up with it. But they did develop new ways of playing and new styles of playing. And the other great story, which is in on Jazz, the new book, is when I was chatting to Clark Terry about being in the Ellington band. First of all, he taught himself to play left-handed. Then he taught himself to play the horn upside down. At one point, he'd have one horn in the right hand and one in the left, and he'd do four bars on this one and four bars, or measures, as you say, on your side of the Atlantic, with one and then four measures with the other. But this was to stave off boredom. He knew the charts. He didn't need to sight-read the music. The whole Ellington band knew everything. If new people came in, there very often wasn't a book of arrangements for their particular instrument that was complete. They might have some of the latest things, but the rest you had to know. And uh, that, was, that was pretty tough. So you're absolutely right. It's like stone cutting. You, you have a technique <laughs> which you, you get better at. And then when you get bored with the grueling life that being on the road or playing these incredibly long gigs, often with a recording session in the middle of the night as well, because that was the only time they could go into the studios to record. So some of the greatest sessions, Lionel Hampton's fam- famous hot mallet session with Coleman Hawkins, Chew Berry, Dizzy Gillespie, Charlie Christian, that was done after they'd finished playing in a nightclub. So it it was incredibly tough work. And I remember talking to many musicians who said, we'd walk out of the studio just as the birds started singing and people were going to work. Was
0: was it very competitive to get into these bands? It sounds like it could be, depending. But it also, because of the grueling nature, did you have a lot of turnover? So I, I'm just trying to understand. Like, I mean, you have to understand, I don't, I, this is not
1: my, my world, right? Sure. No, I, I understand. Um, some of the band had very, what in medical terms you'd call long stay patients. And so they were there for many years. And the original mm-hmm. Basie band had a coterie of musicians who stayed with it for quite some time Buck Clayton, Lester Young. Um, Herschel Evans until he tragically died. The guitarist Freddie Green came in in their first year of traveling the States, and he stayed right till the end of Basie's life. So that was a very long association. Um, Other people came and went. The big turnover tended to happen during World War II when the draft was pulling a lot of people away from music. And then some bands continued with such a grueling life on the road that they just had a natural turnover. And the famous one was Woody Herman's band, where um, the first question people would ask was, Who did you play with? And if the answer was Woody Herman, they'd say, Oh, how many weeks? Right. Now, <laughs> as opposed to how many years? Right. Um, that changed in the very last stages of his life. But I mean, he had the three famous bands, the Herds, in the early days, and only some of the personnel from each one stayed on to the next incarnation. So there was quite a hefty turnover in the bands that worked hardest and traveled most. The ones that had slightly cushy residencies in places where they could be for some period of time didn't have that same turnover. I mean, the Fatswaller small group stayed more or less consistent from 1935 right the way through till he died in 1943. Um, two or three of those players were with it right through Herman Autry the Trumpeter. Who left for a little while, but came back for the big band. Gene Cedric, the clarinet player, was there almost all the way through. There's a few sessions he wasn't on, but by and large, he's there. And then my friend Al Casey, the guitarist, who I was lucky enough to tour with here in Britain, so very first-hand playing connection with the Fat Waller band. But Al joined as a schoolboy and was still playing with Waller um, nine years later.
0: Do you, I had to look it up because I thought it was 375 milliliters, but I ended up finding it was 750. Uh, I had to look up what a fifth of whiskey was. Uh, So you've mentioned the gin and then I believe, I can't remember uh, who it was. It's a saxophone player called called Franz Jackson who
1: says, yeah, I was drinking a fifth a day.
0: He was drinking a fifth a day, which... Uh, I, I read that and I thought it was 375. I was like, that's a lot of whiskey. And then I looked it up and I was like, that's an insane amount of whiskey. Uh, did you see um, a lot of substance abuse on the scene? And do you think that was, if so, was that because of the, why? Was that, is that a, something endemic to musicians? Or do you think that's more just the
1: the difficulties of the job? I think that the swing era musicians did two things. They smoked pot and they drank. Uh, But there wasn't much hard drug abuse in the swing era Mm. period. And not many of the heavy drinkers survived through into the era when I started really getting interested and meeting players. Uh, Franz Jackson was lucky because he gave up when he left the Swallow Band in 1941. And he barely drank in the time that we played together in the 80s and 90s. Um, The... Bebop and subsequent generations, the people who pioneered modern jazz and then went on to develop it subsequently, fall into two uh, camps, really. I mean, it is said that Art Blakey, uh, the drummer, used heroin for most of his career, but he was immensely Mm. discreet about it and seldom out of control. On the other hand, there are other musicians who really did abuse their systems with hard drugs. And the book has some tragic stories of those who didn't survive. And what's interesting is that I talked to all three members of the Miles Davis 1951-3 to band. That's Sonny Rollins um, and uh, Jackie McLean. I didn't talk to Miles himself because he wasn't available. I talked to Percy Heath who played bass on some of those sessions. And all of them said they would not have survived if they hadn't got clean at that point. Mm. They all went through cold turkey at some point Uh, in that period. I mean, Sonny took himself off to Chicago and came back three times the player he'd been before he went, and he was already formidable. So that's a very interesting lesson. Jackie, uh, who became an ardent anti-drug campaigner, he was um, in Hartford, Connecticut, and he taught in Hart College there, but he was as adamant about not getting involved in the hard drug scene as he was about how you played music. And I think that There was a kind of evangelism attached to many of those musicians who had seen the terrible effects at first hand. They'd all seen what happened to Charlie Parker, who's perhaps one of the most famous um, sad, tragic cases of an early death. Didn't seem to compromise his playing abilities for much of his career, did at various times, but some of his late work is absolutely brilliant. But he had this rare ability to hold himself together. I mean, i uh, on my radio show, uh, I think it's this coming week. I'm playing an excerpt from his 1947 Carnegie Hall concert with Dizzy. Well, he was so completely out of it before the concert, he fell asleep in the bath, and uh, his record producer had to break the door down, get him out, fill him with black coffee, and push him on stage. When you hear the results, this sounds like he's just come off practicing. He's perfect. Every note is brilliant. Uh, his ideas are flowing, and The problem is that when somebody is as brilliant as that, those who want to emulate him think that it's a job of emulating every aspect of his life and not just the brilliant playing. Um, There are two or three players. I think somewhere in the book, Ray Brown says he would have been an even better player if he hadn't been on the hard stuff. And I have to say that in my experience, almost everybody has been extremely discreet about where substance abuse has continued, and I've very seldom seen evidence of it, either as a player or as an interviewer or broadcaster. Um, We know it's there, but it's not something that is kind of in your face. But there are a lot of people who talk about how bad it could have been, and how they escaped being addicted at various stages in their careers.
0: Yeah, and that seems, uh, I, I hear a little bit of the undertone there. not pitting, but contrasting the jazz scene to, for instance, the rock and roll scene where the substance abuse was very prevalent and very, uh, certainly (laughs) at specific times, in your
1: face, right? Absolutely. Um, And there is one chapter in my book which is about the jazz rock movement where musicians were moving from one of those scenes to the other. And there we have the example of, of Graham Bond um, <laughs> nearly bleeding to death in the men's room at a service station on a freeway. You know, that, that kind of thing is uh, endemic where those two worlds cross over. And I, I didn't go further into that scene in the book, um, but had I wanted to and to look further into the jazz rock connections, I think those stories would not have been difficult to find and those experiences.
0: Right. Well, I mean... Yeah. And that, it, that's seems to be very clear in the, the rock scene as it existed at the time. Um, to just back up for a second, why did you write this book? Um, I know you've written several. And so this one, obviously personal, what, what for you is the the purpose and maybe even a broader discussion of um, what is your goal as kind of a
1: jazz historian? Well, there's a, those are almost three questions in one. So what have you done? What are your goals? And <laughs> We'll start the with the book. About? book. We'll start, yeah. <laughs> Let's so that, start well, with the actually, new book, my Can apologies. I come to the book in a minute? Because um, what, I, yeah, what I did originally was, uh, in that funny career of mine as being a publisher, uh, I started to try and give a voice on the printed page to musicians whose voices were not going to be read or heard. I mean, when I started this list, there were perhaps only five or six musicians' autobiographies in print. And not even Miles Davis's book had come out at that stage. I mean, there was the Ellington book. um, Count Basie book came out during the second year I was doing this series. But I didn't want to do much in the way of band leaders. I mean, there are very few band leaders in the books that I've done. What I wanted to do was talk to the people who did the work in the bands. Sometimes they'd be a star soloist. Sometimes they'd be somebody who Moved from one band to another, and therein there's a fascination of the the fly on the wall. I mean, Danny Barker, the guitarist, uh, describes himself uh, as being cunning like a fox, looking at all the different things that are going on in his musical life, and he straddles a whole gamut of musical styles. Danny was a great friend of mine. I did two books as his ghostwriter or colleague. I think ghostwriter is unfair because he's a great writer in his own right, but we worked together very closely, and he. In payment for that, showed me New Orleans in a way that I think very few white British writers would ever have experienced. We were going into the Sixth and Seventh Wars, we were going to clubs where I was the only white person in the room. We were meeting legendary musicians who everybody thought had retired, but they were still kicking around and playing really well at that stage. And then he'd take me to see where Louis Armstrong's birthplace was. Where Sidney Bechet used to play all these extraordinary sites of legend in New Orleans, so giving a voice to somebody like Danny, and then later on to Ellington's trumpeter Rex Stewart, to various members of the Basie band, seemed to me to be a really important part of the oral historian's job, which is to try and create a matrix of voices that tell the story of the music developing from. Very many different standpoints. And then in 2000, I, 2001, I published uh, a book called The New History of Jazz, in which I tried to combine conventional jazz scholarship, such as it is, with the voices of the people I'd interviewed or met or read, with discography, which is the one science in jazz where you can more or less say, on this date at this time, in this studio, these musicians did this. And that kind of triangulation is there in earlier books, but one of the things I said in the preface to that book is that jazz, mu- jazz historians tended to pass down, like tablets of stone, the story as they'd learnt it from the previous generation. And many of the early jazz historians were enthusiasts rather than musicians. So the great Marshall Stearns, who wrote the story of jazz, was uh, a linguist of, of medieval English. Um, And and so it goes. Uh, There are um, a number of, of people who wrote about jazz who were not themselves jazz musicians. And so the myths and stories that they were told became the bedrock of history, which even until I did that book at the beginning of this millennium, other critics had just taken for granted. And I wanted to look under that and say, are these stories really true? And what if, what if you'd been there at the time? What would you have seen what was mm-hmm. going on? And so that was the beginning of it. Okay, so that's answers one and two. So answer three, which is why this book is, um, if you publish a set of standalone books, there's no opportunity to see the voices interacting. And what I wanted to do in this book was to put me in the story with the people I would talked to about the stuff we talked about so that you know, I've got a lot about the birth of bebop and Dizzy Gillespie's band going to the West Coast. Well, not many of the historians who've done that have talked to the Californian musicians who experienced them arriving. Um, so yeah. I, I talked to Clora Bryant, Teddy Edwards, who who witnessed this happening, and I published a book by the drummer Roy Porter, who was already trying to play that kind of music when Dizzy and Bird got there. I also talked to the surviving members of that band to try and find out as much as I could. So. Um, you know, I, I got to know Ray Brown, the bassist, very well. When you share an instrument, there's another kind of bond. It's the sort of thing right. where you get a phone call. Um, I'm in Frankfurt. I need somebody to repair a crack in my bass tomorrow. Have you got any suggestions? I mean, he, we both used the same repairer at one point, so uh, he knew that I was somebody he could ask that kind of question. Um, I, I talked to Stan Levy, the drummer, who'd long retired from music but became an eminent jazz photographer. And people forget that he stayed connected by taking. There's a couple of European labels, so nearly all the cover shots are by Stan, who'd been there with Dizzy and yeah. Bird in 1945. And I talked to Milt Jackson, who played vibes in the band. So really, you know, it was a nice opportunity to to bring all these voices together in a way that their relation of the what happened interacted on the page. And so as you go through this book, it's sort of my, my voyage of jazz discovery was almost chronological. I kind of started with the New Orleans jazz, and then I ended up with free jazz and um, the, the uh, O'Neill Coleman and that kind of stuff. So as we go through each historical period, it seemed like a good idea to draw on the voices that I'd either talked to face-to-face or worked on publishing their work.
0: Uh, I love that you mentioned the New Orleans jazz, because that section in particular was just really fascinating to me um especially your you had kind of a, a longer section um you mentioned Donny Barker but and I believe it's his wife Blue Lou
1: Yes Barker
0: Yes Now Blue Lou's story uh, has
1: never really been told in print before I mean I did a little bit of it right. in a magazine but there she was I mean selling a lot of records on Decca and Capitol but because she was a woman at that time journalists didn't really take much interest in her and her story wasn't told. I think it's a fascinating story and she's looking I, at I the loved milieu. It. I mean, she's looking at that milieu of the big band musicians from slightly on the sidelines, but she's a participant as well. I love the bit where there are all these male musicians sitting in the kitchen talking about a new dance and she says, I can do that. And then she right. shows them and suddenly she's inside the circle in a way that she wasn't before.
0: Yes, no, exactly. Um, I, I'm just trying to get a, a grasp on this. It became really you know the same names kept coming up and you know the same few clubs about how big would you say the jazz community obviously not talking about the 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 fans because that that prevents uh, presents a much bigger circle but it seemed like a pretty tight group that really created and sustained the new orleans jazz scene how how big would that would you say it is
1: i think it came and went to be honest BJ. you you have this sort of idea where um If you arrive in New Orleans today, and post Katrina, it's a very different city from the way it was before. But if you stroll through the French Quarter or you walk down Frenchman Street, there are lots of clubs, there are lots of bands playing, there are groups um, out on the street like Tubers Skinny, where you can hear some approximation of the music being played in public. But the when I got there in the seventies, there were not that many places where what one might regard as the authentic New Orleans jazz was being played when I mean, you could almost count them on the fingers of one hand, uh, and that's before um, places like the Palm Court had opened. That's been running now for thirty odd years, but that club hadn't started. So you had Heritage Hall, you had Preservation Hall. There were a couple of clubs down on Basin Street. Um, there were a, a few just at the edge of the quarter, and then a couple on Frenchman Street. And then you had to go out into the boondocks to find anywhere else. And it was—I mean, the, the, I mentioned one of them, the Maple Leaf, which is um, out in Carrollton, Which I'm sure the Masalis family who lived there wouldn't regard it as the Boondocks, but it's um, nonetheless. <laughs> it's uh, it, it was a great club to go and hear authentic music, but slightly latter-day authentic music, more the kind of fats Domino, James Booker sort of sound than the traditional jazz that we associate with Preservation Hall, say. But there were some hotels that put this music on. Um, the Marriott on Canal Street used to have a Sunday brunch with a great little trio that played there, and I talk a bit about that in the book. Um, but there wasn't that amount of opportunity. And I think the, um, hmm. the 70s scene was probably the moment when things just began to come back. And through the 80s, more places opened. And I remember doing um, a series for BBC Radio in 2000, when a whole new generation of players was, was coming on the scene. And that really made, uh, so Nicholas Payton, for example, was just starting out at that stage, and look what's happened to him, you know, a great career since then. And there were various other players of that generation coming through. And so suddenly uh, you had not just the sort of um, born in the sixties, Winton Branford, Marsalis group, but you have the generation after them coming through and really wanting to take the music to new places, as well as being reverential to some degree to the tradition they'd grown up in. So I think, I think the city expanded. And it was a really interesting scene around 2002 when I was last there before Katrina. But then, I mean, I was really shocked five years ago to be mm. there and see how little of some of the out-of-town areas have been rebuilt. And uh, you know that's still very sad the whole community is just wind
0: yeah no absolutely um my dad was there for the uh final four he works with college basketball coaches and he he said the same thing it's been uh a difficult if uh, a difficult rebuild for sure um may, uh, maybe changing tact just a little bit um what does it take cuz i like you said, you're, you're, you didn't play a lot as a professional musician, but you did reach that standard, right? You were able to play with bands. What uh, what does it take to become a professional musician?
1: Well, it's the same as the answer of how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's the musician's answer, of course, uh, as opposed right, to saying, right. oh, it's on 54th Street. Um, but you, yeah. <laughs> you, you have to... Um, I, It it does demand a lot of practice and it demands a lot of listening, and one of the disadvantages of being interested in as many different forms of jazz as I am is that you can't easily master playing in more than two or three of them without spending absolutely all your time playing and working on it, and I simply haven't had the time to do that. And I've tried to devote my skills and energy to other things as well, like the book publishing and the broadcasting, but the The basic thing is that once you've got a a level of skill on an instrument, you try and maintain that. I mean, people will look at the photographs in the book and go, oh, his left-hand fingering is terrible. How does he get away with it? Um, (laughs) Well, I have to work very hard on that, and I made myself relearn and practice some elements of the instrument in the last little while. I even had a bass built for me because I wanted to have a decent instrument that I could use in any circumstances. And that made me think hard about technique. And that was kind of five, six years ago. And uh, until the pandemic, uh, I was really working very hard on the instrument again. Uh, then, having two years where you couldn't really play, right. um, there were no gigs. Um, we had tours cancelled for the band. Um, and we haven't, for quite unrelated reasons, which I'll just put in brackets Brexit, we haven't been easy, easily able to run a European band with. German and Dutch players in it, which is what my Buck Clayton Legacy Band is. Well, we've had American guests as well who are members of Buck's original band, but we, we have picked our musicians from Britain, France, Germany, um, Holland, and um, in one case, Switzerland as well. So that is now very difficult. You need a different entry arrangement for each European country if you have a British passport. And our European players... Uh, they can come into Britain and play, but if you pay them, they have to have visas, and those are rather expensive. So the band is in abeyance at the moment, and I've gone back to my New Orleans roots with a band of British players. Um, all of us spent a long time in New Orleans at various stages, and it's been great to rediscover that music uh, and to discover that, that we all learned a huge amount back in the day when we were there. Uh, growing up and listening to it. And we all benefited from the professional music musicians who were around taking the time to help us. And I think this is one of the, you know, I saw at the beginning of the book, you know, how does a, a white British guy connect with what is fundamentally an African-American music? In the 70s, there was such a worry that the music that citizens of New Orleans loved was going to disappear that they were very happy to help and encourage anyone who wanted to see that music continue. And I've mentioned numerous names in the book of people from drummer Freddie Coleman and his colleague Chester Jones to Danny Barker to other musicians that I've toured with over the years. All of them were generous because they wanted the music to carry on and they could see we were serious about it. And I say we because there's, there's little coterie of us. And Richard Simmons, who's played piano on my most recent CD, Uh, actually toured with George Lewis from New Orleans. So he has that pedigree of working with a a generation before the musicians that I toured with. It's really lovely to have him in the band. I mean, he's nudging 80 years old, but he's still playing wonderfully. And you shut your eyes and you're in a New Orleans dance hall in the 70s. It's just wonderful to hear. So I'm not quite sure how we got onto that, but I, I was talking about mentorship, really.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah. i i I love that actually that fits really well with the next question i had and this question might be impossible but i would love it it would really appreciate if you gave it a try what does it feel like to play jazz in front of uh an audience and to have like things just going well
1: there's nothing better nothing um it's one of those great feelings and we've with the Buck Clayton Legacy Band that I run, we've had that once or twice. The most emotional was when, just before the first lockdown, we were in Limoges in France at the end of 2019, and Buck Clayton himself had been the honorary president of the Limoges Jazz Club, and he'd written a piece of music called "Mes Amis de Limoges," and they proudly have that framed in the uh, little office for the hot club of Limoges. Well. We thought we'd do a new arrangement of it for the band, to play it in the way that Buck's band would have played it. And I said before we played it, uh, Le morceau s'appelle Mes Amis de Limoges pour Nos Amis de Limoges. And the house was quiet for a minute, and then we got thunderous applause before we'd even played it. And then we Hmm. played, and I looked across at the band, and everybody was pulling this extraordinary energy from the audience. They played really, really well. But it's, it's, a, it's a symbiotic relationship. You have this connection with the crowd. I mean, it's happened to me a few times before. Actually, playing with the New Orleans trumpeter kid Thomas in Breda in Holland, they used to do the jazz festival there in an enormous sports hall. We were playing to 2,000 people. That's a big audience. And we had an 86-year-old. He said, I'm 100, but it wasn't true. Um, had an 86-year-old <laughs> trumpeter playing with us, and when when you're there in front of a crowd that size, and a man puts on a little milkmaid's bonnet, stands on his chair and sings milk cow blues, again <laughs> he had the audience in the palm of his hand, and it, it was just great to be part of that experience, with somebody who was of that generation, proving that he could take a European audience who had no idea who he was. I mean. Of the 2,000 people in that room, I should think 40 or 50 had some inkling who Kid Thomas was. But my goodness, they rose to the occasion. And again, you have that incredible buzz. But you know what? It's just as exciting playing in a small room to a handful of people. My renaissance since the pandemic, is we do a monthly session here in Oxfordshire, to a relatively small audience, it's a quartet that plays. When those go right, you could hear a pin drop. I mean, it's just wonderful. And again, um, the, uh, we play in a, um, a church that's been turned into a kind of community center. So Britain has a lot of medieval churches that haven't quite got much of a use these days. And so many parishes are turning them into community hubs or centers. And we play there. And the vicar said, after the last session, he's quite a jazz fan. That's why we're there. But he said, <laughs> you just can't imagine somebody walking in off the street, seeing the sign Jazz Club and coming in and hearing music of this quality. But of hmm. course, when they do, the connection is there. I mean, I'm not saying I'm a great member of the band, but the other three members are absolutely fabulous. And they're all full-time players. And we have that ability to take an audience on a journey with us from the beginning mm. of the gig right the way through to the end. Nobody leaves during the gig, which I suppose is a good thing. But yes. they come back. And they come back. And uh, I I feel very proud that we're able to do that. So it's it's the intimate answer to the how does it feel? It's just as great to be playing to fifty or sixty people in a community hub as it is to be playing to two thousand people in a Dutch concert hall.
0: And those are obviously moments of the audience, but when you're practicing or just playing together, what is that like when it's just you in the
1: band? We don't practice all that much, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I mean, one of the one of the amazing things about the this monthly gig that we do is that because we tend to have a slightly different permutation of musicians each time, which is another reason the audience keeps coming, apart from sitting down for an hour before the gig and just saying, well, What are we gonna play and how are we gonna do it? That's it, really. And hmm. yeah, we occasionally mess things up, but the audience is with us in that because they know it's spontaneous. With the the Buck Clayton Legacy, yes, we do rehearse because we have complicated charts and we've put a lot of time and energy into that band. But once we've toured the repertoire a bit, mainly what we do is we tweak arrangements so that we would do a core of, say, half a dozen charts we've done before, and then we'd add three or four new ones into a running order. And so that gives us the opportunity to keep renewing the band. But Mm. often that will be a soundcheck rehearsal where somebody will dole out the parts before and we'll sight read it and then we'll tweak it and and play it that night. I mean, sometimes that music is deeply challenging and sometimes other things happen that make it more difficult to do than you think. So for example, we were playing in a place called Talville in Switzerland and we decided to do a couple of bits of Ellington's Newport Suite, cut down from Big Band to my nine-piece group. And when I got there, they obviously, because we'd flown in and out, they'd hired in a bass for me. And I couldn't play it, because the action was so low, um, I couldn't get a sound out of it. Uh, I certainly yeah. couldn't have played it for a whole evening. Um, and so there we were, two hours before the concert. And I thought, well, I'm not going to be able to play. And they also said, well, if you're not playing, we're not playing. So then we had to do something about it. And the sound engineer said, oh, I know someone just... So this guy I've never met before gets me in his van and we drive off into Zurich. (laughs) And we, in a dark street, knocks on this door and uh, he had actually telephoned ahead, which I didn't know. And a guy opened the door and he says, oh, you've come for the bass. So we go up and I look at the bass and I think, I know I've seen this instrument somewhere. Because, you know, it's like... uh, Looking right. at a, an old painting, you sort of know an instrument if you've seen it. And the guy said, oh yes, it belonged to Ellington's bass player, Jimmy Woody, who lived in Switzerland <laughs> for 20 years. And I'd got Jimmy to play, and he's some stuff about him in the book, but I got him to play at the Ascona Festival in Switzerland with the, um, uh, the, the big band of the Swiss Lausanne radio orchestra that came in. And they, they did an Ellington evening, and they had Ellington's bassist playing with them. That's where I'd seen the bass. And so I had the weird experience of playing the Newport Suite on Jimmy Woody's own bass that had played the music in Newport in 1956. So I've always felt a bit of a connection to that music, and there's a lot about that concert, including some photographs in the book, because it it was a very famous concert, but perhaps not quite so epoch-making as legend has it. (laughs) But for me, legendary, because of my connection with that wonderful bass player.
0: Oh, of course! No, that that makes total sense. Um. So I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, kind of as we we wrap up here, just a, a couple questions. Um, about the evolution of jazz and and the future for jazz. But uh, so to start with, that evolution of jazz. What has it been like to watch jazz evolve? What are your feelings about that? Do you have specific opinions? Like sometimes you're like, oh, that isn't where it should go, or uh, how do you, or you're, you're, you get excited about that and you, you like to see
1: new generations invent and reinvent? I'm more excited than, I, don't, I wouldn't use the word shouldn't, because I think that it's a little bit like um, how in certain languages, there is something like the Académie Française that says what is good French and what isn't. Um, and so if you contravene those rules, you're not speaking the grammatical language and, it is possible to fall into a mindset that says, this is jazz and this isn't. But the musicians who play it don't think like that. I don't think that I've, when I've worked or talked to somebody like, say, Joe Lovano, he said, oh, well, I'm off on a tour now, but I'm not playing jazz. It's all music and it's a continuum. So I think the word should ought not to come into it. I love the idea when Dr. Johnson was writing his dictionary, he didn't prescribe how language should be. He reflected how language was, and that's mm. a very good stance for an observer and historian of, of a music. Because if you look back to the '40s, you see writers, writers like uh, Rudy Blasch um, and some of the other critics of that era saying, or well, the, the French Hugues uh, Panassié is a great example, saying, "This is jazz and this isn't." So Paul Whiteman, no, that's not jazz well actually given that he and photography invented the instrumentation of in the modern big band and how to write for it probably they had quite a contribution to make but hmm. they didn't fit a particular view and there was a famous marxist historian in britain called eric hobsbawm who felt that um, he wrote under the name francis newton after his favorite trumpeter frank newton and uh, hobsbawm believed that jazz was effectively a working class music and it had been hijacked by the middle class well Yeah, but then Fletcher Henderson was a chemistry graduate. Jimmy Lunsford was a very advanced school teacher who then decided that he'd take the music he'd been teaching out on the road. And there's example after example after example of middle-class African-Americans in the 30s, particularly, who were not necessarily able to, to follow a career that they'd trained for and qualified in, but music offered them something where their Organizational talents, their intellectual grasp of subject matter could really be used. And those two are great examples. I mean, Henderson became one of the great band leaders and arrangers. And Mm. he did that by not practicing as a chemist um, because he couldn't take his theoretical chemistry to the level he wanted as an African American at that period. He could have worked in a pharmacy, but that wasn't where his heart was. So he did music instead. And I think there are many things like that. So, Hobsbawm's theory works very well if you're a Marxist historian, but it does ignore some of the elements that went into making up the music that we call jazz. So I think those changes have always been there and always going on. I find some of what's going on now very exciting. and One of the great thrills of my life is that I've been teaching the first and second year students of jazz at the Royal Academy of Music for the last 15 years now. and. That's like having your finger on the pulse of a very, very active patient. You mm. know really <laughs> what's going on. Those kids are at every jam session. They're hanging out late night at Ronnie Scott's or the other clubs around in London. They're the ones who told me where the new clubs are, where music is going on that, you know, the, 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 I suppose the New Yorker Covenant would be somewhere like Smoke or some of the other clubs, which came up after I worked there in the 80s and 90s. But the. The buzz I get from hearing my students, but I'm going to hear them tomorrow night playing their end of year recital at the academy. Assuming that the British train strikes allow me to get there, but um, I'm uh, sorry, it's Friday night. I, I'll be going to hear them. No, <laughs> and this this is so exciting to hear these 19, 20, 21 year olds playing demanding music together, um, and they take in all kinds of influences. So I don't prescribe. I listen, and I mm. think in the last chapter of the book, uh, there's quite a substantial contribution from Theo Croker. Well, there's Theo, up and coming, new album just out from Columbia, played Carnegie Hall for the first time just a month ago, uh, is back in New York at the moment playing. Um, I don't know quite mm. when this podcast is going out, but certainly uh, around the end of June right, 2022, right. he's he's playing. Um, so And Theo has... He's got a tremendous respect for the tradition because his grandfather was Doc Cheatham. When I last saw Theo in London, I was able to give him some letters that his granddad had written about him to me. So that was a nice connection. But what Theo does as a musician is spellbinding because you feel all that connection to the tradition, but you also sense this person who's experimenting way beyond it. And not every time, But most times I've heard Kamasi Washington, I've been conscious of this same absorption of other influences. You know, he's he's worked with Kendrick Lamar. I mean, I wouldn't say that To Pimp a Butterfly is a jazz album. But nonetheless, (laughs) the influences that come from that group of musicians Are very strongly there in Kamasi's music and hearing him here in London. And also knowing that after the big concerts at places like the Albert Hall in London, which is a 3,000 seater, he goes and sits in at clubs with my students, amongst other people. That's the mark of somebody who's in the scene, who's mopping up what's going on, who's listening for everything that's happening. And London is a good place. Lots is happening in London at the moment. Uh, There are some great musicians coming through. And I think that's something which. On the world scene, the more switched on musicians to what's, what's being developed in the music are very well aware of. And as well as looking at what's happening in the United States, they will be coming here. And they'll also be looking at music in other parts of the world. There's some great music going on in Eastern Europe. There's some great music going on uh, in, the, in South Asia. You know? So we have to be aware of all these different places where jazz has traveled and is developing with a whole series of regional accents.
0: As we uh, conclude here, if you're talking to someone who, does not, who knows nothing about jazz, but they would like to learn to appreciate it more, where would you tell them to start listening?
1: Or who would you tell them to start listening with? I did do a sort of a top 10 um, jazz albums for Cambridge University Press when we were um, putting the book together. They're my top 10, but they have some <laughs> things that um, might appeal to other listeners. So for example, um, I started actually with a collection uh, it's a CD uh, anthology of all the collaborations between Billy Holiday and Lester Young. because if mm. you don't like jazz, at least, you can connect with one of the great interpreters of song. And mm. so Billy's singing. And singing sometimes quite trivial lyrics, but somehow making them seem serious, is a great place to start. And when she's surrounded by musicians of the quality of Lester Young, you have this, again, this feeding of interaction between musician and singer. So that was absolutely top of my list. I had big trouble thinking of which Miles Davis albums to recommend. And I can't, off the top of my head, remember which one I finally put in my top 10, but it was- I don't either, have it up,
0: sorry. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, it was either Bitch's Brew or uh, it was um, one of the early ones. Um, it'd be kind of blue, I think. But th- th- those albums have a universal appeal. That's why they've sold millions of copies. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they stand in two very different parts of the tradition, but then that's Miles, because he moved through so many different types of music in his life. And then I looked back, the reasons why I thought Fat Swallow was an interesting musician, my grandchildren love him for the same reasons. They're still listening to the lyrics. They're not listening to the piano playing, but they love the funny songs. And so it goes. So I think there are many, many ways in. One of the other musicians who's still with us, sadly not playing since 2012, but just an inspiration at every turn is Sonny Rollins. And you can start almost anywhere in Sonny's catalogue you will want to go further, either look back to see where how he got there or where he was going on to. And in my lovely interview with him in the book, he was so lucid about it. He said, I never listened to my own recordings. And then he's describing individual bars of some of the, the pieces that he played. <laughs> so he has this photographic memory of his own output. That was a great privilege and a, and a fascinating interview to do. And then I think I'd also... Um, put in one of the great Oscar Peterson albums, probably the London House collection from Chicago. Because again, certainly in, when my kids, my older children were growing up, they're in their 40s now, but they were watching Oscar on television when they were at school. And he opened up jazz for them. He was this lovely avuncular figure who could make the complicated music seem approachable and easy, which it isn't, but it always seemed to be easy <laughs> in his hands. And when you listen to him at the top of his form, you're hearing somebody who, some jazz critics say, oh, he's all surface." Not a bit of it. I think he's a very profound musician. And I've learned a lot from listening to and uh, studying his music over the years. So those are some starting points. Not quite the one place that you might have looked for as an entree, but uh, some different ones.
0: I, I think that's great, you know, to give people... Um i think the first thing is to to fall in love with it right and so uh if you if you give people just one name and they don't happen to connect with it you know maybe someone doesn't like the silly lyrics uh for me with a four and seven year old i i think i'd start with Fat Swaller, right like that makes sense to me um and i'm a bit immature myself you know <laughs> you
1: might start with with uh ray charles or aretha franklin or anybody who sung songs that can connect with that age group as well, but. Um, It's, um, and you know, there have been plenty of efforts to try and reach a children's market. And funnily enough, I think those don't work. Uh, I think it's much better for kids to discover the music almost accidentally and then find that there are things that speak to them within it.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Alan Shipton, thank you so much for coming
1: on today. I've had great fun, PJ. Thanks very much for asking me.